I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, reading verses 1 and 2 and then skipping to verse 12 of this portion of God's Word. But before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of your law. We pray that in our study of it, as we continue to plug, tread our way through these Ten Commandments, would be used of you to expose the hearts within in our need, ongoing need for the Lord Jesus Christ, whether for the first time or ongoing. And Lord, may we come to see the delight and calling of living for our faithful Savior, living joyfully and submissively under your divine authority and being renewed in our vigor to pray for those who lead us in so many different areas of life. Um, We pray that your Holy Spirit uh, will be pleased to take the eternal truth of your word and write it deep upon the hearts of your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The word of our God, you may be seated. As we continue to work our way through the Ten Commandments, and as we come to the fifth commandment tonight about honoring father and mother, You might remember the discussion that we had a number of weeks ago about the division of the law. The book can't say with absolute certainty how the law of the Lord was initially inscribed upon those two tablets of stone, whether it was four commandments on one and six on the other, or five and five, or as I tend to believe that there are two identical copies of the law of the Lord. But nonetheless, when we speak about the two tables of the law, We're talking about the first four commandments that govern our response to God and the next six commandments that govern the way we treat one another. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responded, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37. And so the first four commandments that we've looked at previously have to do with that vertical dimension, we might say growing in our love, affection, and devotion for the Lord God. The first four commandments help us to understand how we, as God's redeemed people, are to bring will and affections, desires, words, actions, all that we are under His rule over our lives. And here with the fifth commandment, our attention shifts to that horizontal dimension, with the latter six commandments helping us to understand how to love our neighbor. Now, it's important for us to be mindful that these two dimensions are not isolated from one another. In other words, it's not as though someone can say, I love the Lord God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just can't stand other people. Nor can someone say, well, I care deeply for my fellow man. I care about areas of injustice and poverty and the needs I see all around me, but I really don't see what that has to do with my relationship with God. Just as one example, listen to 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
And so as we move forward in our study of the Ten Commandments, and as the Fifth Commandment shifts our focus to our charge to love neighbor, we obviously cannot lay aside the things that we have already learned about growing in our love and obedience toward the Lord God. In a sense, our love for neighbor is an outflow of a heart that is growing in love and obedience to God. So let's think first about the foundational nature of the fifth commandment. And this is our first point this evening, the foundation of the fifth commandment. Now, when I say it's foundational, what I mean is just as the first commandment laid the foundation for the charge to love God, the fifth commandment lays the foundation or groundwork for love of neighbor, that second table of the law. And so if we understand what it means to honor father and mother, then we will come to understand how the rest of the law applies to our relationships with those around And so what I want us to see here is the foundational nature of the family relationship, the foundational nature of the home, because certainly the evil one understands this, and the cultural elites in the world around understand that if they are going to turn the hearts and minds of the next generation, then the family must be undermined and displaced. And certainly there are very militant efforts in our own time that seem to be pushing in a more and more aggressive way, almost on a weekly basis, daily basis, all under the name of progress, inclusion, and tolerance that are meant to destroy the family. We've seen this very blatantly in the Black Lives Matter movement over the last couple of years, in which the founders explicitly state that they wish to dismantle the family. From their own statements, they write, We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children. There was an academic not that long ago who was reflecting upon her days of protest in the 1960s who wrote, we were the generation that destroyed the American family. We might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We believed that the family was the foundation of the state. We truly believed that the family had to be torn apart, and the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. Just think about how commonplace it is in kids' shows and family movies these days to portray those parents or any adult authority figure as sort of the bumbling fool, whereas the child or teenage figures are the more enlightened, intuitive, sort of free-flowing spirit. Kevin DeYoung notes that our children are being indoctrinated to give their allegiance to some other authority, to embrace an ideology that is contrary to God's design. God has made us And he has made the family to be the primary foundational institution of nurture, of love, and instruction. The teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is so wonderfully practical in helping us to understand how the Word of God is to be integrated into all of family life. You are to love the Lord your God with with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Family life is to be bathed in the truth of God's word. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting with verse 18, and hear how important the family relationship is to the Lord God. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, how are we to understand the severity of a text like this? The severity of a son being killed by the covenant community for his rebellion and stubborn heart. Someone has written about this text that the reason why this punishment was so severe is because this rebellious son threatens not only the stability of that family, but he threatens the social order. And in fact, his rebellion is an assault upon the whole nation's covenant with the Lord God. Scripture does not deal with us as purely independent, autonomous units. Israelites were members of Israel as a whole, and it is with Israel that the Lord deals. We might think of the example of Achan from the book of Joshua, who kept some of the spoil from the plunder of Jericho that was to all be destroyed, bringing struggle upon the nation of Israel in the next battle that they went out to fight. Now, Achan was the only one who knew what he did, but Joshua chapter 7 verse 1 says the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the sin of Achan. And so the whole community is implicated in this man's rebellion. One man's disobedience becomes a threat to everyone. You see, as Westerners, we like to think in very individualistic categories but we cannot get away from the fact that the family is the foundational building block of the culture. And as the family goes, so goes the society. When the family breaks down, the entire society is in jeopardy. And this commandment helps us to understand what that home life, what that family life is to look like. And there is instruction to both parties involved in the fifth commandment, to parent and child. So this is our second main point this evening, instruction. Instruction to parents and instruction to child. Well, first, what does this commandment have to say to the child? Well, a child is to honor father and mother. And that's clear enough for a young child to understand and yet it's full enough and can be nuanced enough all the way into adulthood. Now, the word for honor is the little Hebrew word kabod, which also has reference to God's glory. And so it has to do with weightiness. And so in this context, the child is to give honor, to give weight, to give value to the instruction that is offered to him from his parents. And the reason why so much weight should be given to the words of the parent is because the character or the heart of the young man or young woman is being shaped 
and formed at this early stage of life within the home. We read in Proverbs 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so the heart of the child, the character of the child is being formed in all of these little moments of life together within the home. And the trajectory of that child's life is all determined upon how he or she responds to authority. And so the child is not to despise the words of his parents. He is not to belittle them or mock them, not to dismiss them, not to roll his eyes at them or treat their words as light with little value, but as weighty because there are eternal truths bound up in their instruction. And so that's the charge you see to the child. But what does that charge to the child presume to be true about him? In other words, what do we presuppose about the nature of that child that leads God to even give this command in the first place? Well, what this presumes is that the child has inherent weakness and immaturity and rebellion that is bound up in his fallen heart. Of course, this is true of us all. We are weak. We are foolish. We are all prone to rebellion. We need discipline. We need guidance. And we need instruction. And the temptation of the foolish heart is to convince us that we know all that we need to know already. But we need to keep those prideful hearts in check by humbling ourselves, just as we heard this morning from our text from 1 Corinthians 10. Humble ourselves and listen to those whom the Lord has put into our lives to help us. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful treatise, Thoughts for Young Men, writes that pride sits in all our hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us rest satisfied with ourselves. Pride makes us think we are good enough as we are. Pride stops our ears against advice and refuses the gospel and turns us to our own way. The refrain that we read throughout the book of Proverbs because you know that was written with the young man or young woman in mind. The phrase that we hear over and over again is, listen, hear, receive, understand the instruction that is being offered to you. Open your mind and heart to correction. When you are taught, expect to be learned, expect to learn something. When you are corrected, expect to change. Don't resist such things, but actually welcome such guidance. And Proverbs even tells the young person to seek out discipline. Imagine that. Imagine a young person. If you're a young person here, imagine how blown away your parents would be if you actually came to them and asked for discipline and correction and instruction and wisdom and guidance. Imagine how much wisdom you would gain if you actually initiated a conversation with your parents, asking them to help you maneuver through the complexities of ethical decisions that are coming up in the world around you in your social sphere. Imagine how much wisdom you would gain if you discussed with them the different struggles that you were enduring or engaged in mentally and theological struggles and issues. 
In our culture, it's almost assumed that at some point in your life, typically in your teenage or college years, you are going to rebel against authority. In fact, it's expected that you're going to rebel. And you're led to believe that if you don't rebel, there's something wrong with you. But that's simply not true. The expectation from the word of the Lord to those who are in the covenant community is that children are actually welcoming instruction, being attentive to teaching, even seeking out discipline from their loving parental authorities. Listen to how important this is to the Lord God. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 2 Timothy 3.1, understand this, that in the last days people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Romans 1.29, they, that is, those who are under the wrath of God, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I can remember the first time reading that passage from Romans chapter 1. I don't mean the first time just sort of reading it through because you check it off a list, but actually paying attention to the things that the Apostle Paul is labeling there as characteristics of those who are deserving of the wrath of God. And I remember nodding in my heart, agreeing with all of those things, yes, the murderer, the gossip, the slanderer, but then getting to the disobedient to parent, well, maybe he's not quite as serious there. That one belongs certainly in another category, doesn't it? We all do it. We're all guilty of it. It can't be that big of a deal. But in fact, a disobedience to parents is just as deserving of the wrath of God as a murderer and hater of God. It is not a small thing at all to disobey parents. There is no biblical notion of some typical teenage years of rebellion. And in fact, that should never be tolerated, never permitted, never excused within our homes and within our own minds and hearts as young people. And notice how the Lord goes on to give an incentive to this commandment, an incentive to the young child to show honor to parents, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's a promise that's reiterated in Ephesians chapter 6. It would have been enough for the Lord to tell us to honor father and mother, but in his kindness, he holds out this incentive to help motivate us. And this long life is not just about longevity of life, but it's about abundant life, a life of joy and peace, because you're living according to God's design, believing His Word and obeying Him. You intuitively know that this is true. When you obey your parents, things go much better for you than when they don't. Just think of how a parent holds out a reward to a child to help motivate him or her. We have our 
family meals periodically in the gym, just as we did for Bob Lane last week. And there's always that table of delectable desserts that's sitting out there. That's all your kids want is the dessert. And Robin and I sit at some of you at the table and you motivate them to eat their meal before they can go and get something from the dessert table. The Lord holds out this promise of blessing to help us learn to think long-term, ultimately to help us learn to think in terms of eternity. Now, for those young people who are still in the home, as you grow, you certainly see the weakness and failure of your parents, don't you? You see their impatience, you see their sin, and you see their inconsistencies. And the pride within your own heart wants you to believe that you can dismiss them because of their weaknesses and their failures. But you are not to obey your parents because you believe that they are worthy or deserving, but because the Lord calls you to. John Calvin said, to despise or reject parental authority is to declare that we do not want to obey God. And so the way that you respond to your parents within the home is indicative, revealing of how you think of the Lord's loving authority in your own life. The Heidelberg Catechism 105 asks, what does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and all in authority over me and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience and also patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities, since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. Of course, there's another party involved in this commandment, and those are the parents. And so as much as the instruction is given to the child to honor father and mother, the parents themselves, of course, have a responsibility. And the parents represents the Lord's authority within the home. And so I think there's an implied charge here for parents. Father and mother are to be students of Scripture. They are to be lovers of God. They are to be regular in worship, faithful to one another, longing for holiness of life as they model humility to the living God. Your children should see you study the Scriptures They should see you reference and refer to the Word of God to answer the questions that come up in life together within the home. They should hear you pray for the needs of the church and the needs of the world. They should hear you pray for them by name. Parents are to pass along God's instruction to their children. And ultimately, it's the parent who is responsible for what the child learns and cannot shift the blame to anyone else. In commenting on his recent book, Strange New World, Carl Truman, in talking about the influence of technology upon our children, puts it like this, parents cannot assume that just because their child is homeschooled or Christian school that they are isolated from the wicked things of this present age. You can homeschool them all you want, but if you give them unfettered access to a smartphone, Game is over at that point because the most influential people in their lives are no longer parents, teachers, or pastors, but it's those who make TikTok and YouTube videos 
and those who give their approval on social media. And so the parent must help them to grow in discernment of what is good and right, what is wicked and what is evil and destructive, and help them to pursue Jesus. But there's even more instruction that is here for the parents. The parent is also to model respect toward others in authority, respecting the boss, obeying the laws of the land, seeking to pay taxes and guard your mouth and heart against grumbling about those in authority and even praying for those who rule over you. In 2 Timothy 3.15, the apostle Paul commends Timothy by stating, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the young disciple Timothy was grounded in the truth of God's word from a young age and became wise as he, as he aged and served to the church. And Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Thomas Watson, commenting on that verse from Proverbs, says, continually water them with good instruction. At the same time, the parent is not to abuse his or her authority. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians three twenty one, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so this means that parents are not to be unreasonable in the demands that they have of their children, recognizing their different temperaments, personalities, ages, stages of life. They are not to correct in anger or to correct oppressively, but only out of love. They are not to abuse their authority as parents and presume that their children belong to them to serve their needs. They are not to put inappropriate weight upon the conscience of their child. Again, they are to pray for them and pray with them. Pray that their hearts would be guarded from the evils of this world. Pray that they would long to honor the Lord God with their lives and bring glory to Him. Pray that they would bear faithful witness to the Lord Jesus in whatever calling He has placed upon them. Pray that as they grow and as many of them marry, that they would be faithful husbands and wives. One of the saddest indictments from Scripture It's from the book of Judges, chapter 2. After the death of Joshua and that entire generation that was brought into the land of Canaan, we read that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You've heard Pastor McWilliams lovingly exhort us to be mindful that we are one generation away from apostasy, one generation away from deserting the Lord. And so it is absolutely critical that we make the most of every opportunity to take the loving instruction of God's Word and to press it upon the hearts and minds of our children. Really taking what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and working that out in contemporary circumstances and situations. There's much more that can be said about our responsibilities to superiors, to inferiors, to equals. Our shorter and larger catechism has wonderful exposition on the application of the fifth commandment to all of these varying relationships with others. And there are many qualifiers that we don't have time to address tonight, 
What should we think of abusive or neglectful or unbelieving parents? Or how this commandment continues to apply even into adulthood with aging parents? These are all questions, perhaps for another time. But one last thing to touch on, and that is our failures contrasted with Jesus' successes. And our third point is just this, seeing our need for Christ the Lord. How many of us can say that we've actually kept the fifth commandment, that we have never talked back to parents, never deceived them, never talked back to them? Who of us can say that they have never silently cursed parents or had anger in their hearts toward them? Who of us has always spoken well of parents and even initiated conversations with them to mature our relationships? Who of us has given them the care that they need and the honor they deserve for their position in life or gratitude for all that they have sacrificed for us? Who of us can say that we have consistently modeled respect for all the authorities over us and have never grumbled or complained about the leadership of others? Certainly we all fall short and the law serves to expose those weak and proud and rebellious hearts. But there was a perfect son, the son of God, who had failing parents, but never used that as an excuse to dismiss them. He never resisted their will. He never rolled his eyes at them or talked back to them. He was never disrespectful, but always responded the first time in obedience. Imagine Mary never had to count to three Jesus even cared for Mary to the very end. In John chapter 19, while dying upon the cross for our sins and bearing the wrath of God, he cared for her by instructing John to look after Mary. Throughout his entire earthly life, Jesus delighted to obey, longed to hear instruction from God's word, was always about his father's business. He cared more about the will of his heavenly Father in heaven than anything else. Jesus said in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. We could say reverently that Jesus was obsessed with the will of his Father in heaven. But remember from that passage in Deuteronomy 21 where the rebellious son is killed and cast out of the covenant community. Well, this was an extreme punishment that ought to fall upon us. It was a punishment that Jesus actually endured on our behalf. You see, in Deuteronomy 21, the charges of the elders of the city is that this son is stubborn and rebellious, that he will not obey our voice, that he is a glutton and a drunkard. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders had such disdain toward the Lord Jesus that they brought those accusations from Deuteronomy 21 against him. They plot and they scheme and they have hatred within their heart that grows as they seek to build a case against him. And Jesus is brought before the elders who condemn him to death 
who charge him with being the rebellious son, driving him out of the city and handing him over to the Romans for crucifixion. Jesus is the only perfect son. He is the one who never rebelled. Instead, it was all of Israel who was guilty before God. It is you and me who are the rebellious children, the wicked offspring of the living God. We are full of the gluttony of our own pride. We are drunk in our self-righteousness and arrogance. But it was the only obedient Son of God who went in our place, whose mouth was silent before his accusers, taking the judgment and condemnation that we deserved as that willing substitute that we might not be cut off, but that we might be made recipients of a more glorious heavenly kingdom to come. We are not accepted on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And because our most blessed Savior was cut off for us, we have the rights and privileges of adoption. As we close, listen to these wonderful words on adoption. While justification gives God's people the title to heaven, it is adoption which grants us the legal status of sons. It's one thing to have God accept us as judge, but quite another to be accepted before Him and call Him our Father, being granted intimacy with the living God. And truly, this is our most wondrous privilege because of our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus. May the Lord God be pleased to work obedience in the lives of His redeemed children because of the mercy that He has shown to us. Amen.